now and to open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As a church family, we've been going through the New Testament, uh, looking at how each letter in the New Testament begins and ends, and uh, we find ourselves here towards the latter half of the year now in the what is called the pastoral epistles. Uh, many of the letters uh, written uh, had been addressed to congregations in a certain geographic area, but last week we began 1 Timothy, and after this letter, another one to him, and then another one to somebody named Titus, where what we're now getting to read in on is uh, the communication of one person to another, uh, a mentor to a mentee, a, a discipler to a disciple, uh, giving advice and counsel and truthful input uh, to try to then shape the next generation of leadership uh, in the church. And uh, there was a sense of anticipation in all the disciples that Christ would return a second time quickly. And as it became clear to them that that return was going to be delayed, uh, they recognized that they now might not be around to see it. And so they did need to now prepare the next generation of leaders who would establish the churches and help them to continue to grow to be ready for the day when they would no longer be there and that they would have to take the reins themselves. And so this is a bit of what we're getting to read uh, in this morning here in 1 Timothy it says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. 
he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And that will conclude our reading for this morning. Uh, It's a a challenging uh, chapter, but it again comes from that posture of someone who loves someone enough that they're willing to, to be clear and direct about serious things that they're going to encounter. And uh, this isn't now the only time that Paul is bringing up the subject of, of money and possessions and finances. If you've read through the whole letter, you've seen that that's already been coming up again and again. And Paul is preparing Timothy that this is going to be a significant thing that he's going to constantly have to deal with but it will definitely shape the trajectory of his ministry and the integrity with which people view it. Because as he had warned that there in chapter one, there were false teachers that had crept into the church. We also get here a description that part of that false teaching is also people coming in and they are now trying to use uh, their false teaching for unrighteous gain. And so that they think of even now getting more involved in leadership as an opportunity for them to better themselves. And so Paul was warning not only of their false doctrine, but also the motive for which some of them are now creeping into the church. And he's warning Timothy to pay attention to that, but also to be aware at times that that will come, those challenges will come even his own way. And so the first thing to say as we look at this chapter is that money matters are spiritual matters. Money matters are spiritual matters. Money is more tangible. It's easier to quantify for us, and sometimes we can then separate it and say, that's, that's more of a math problem, and some of us are better at math than, a, than others of us. Some of us are more organized uh, than others. Um, but the Bible says again and again that money is also a window into your heart and mind. And so, though it is more tangible and physical, it reveals spiritual truths about each and every one of us. And nothing is ever, quote, just business. But because God has made us as bodies and souls, everything that affects us physically also affects us spiritually. And so, it's impossible to talk about spiritual health and well-being without also considering what physical and mental and emotional health and well-being would mean. And we see, even in the Old Testament, when God rescued the people of Israel from the physical oppression of slavery, he then promised to them that they would enter into a land flowing with milk and honey. 
didn't say, I'm going to take you to a place where you'll just be free to sit around all day uh, and pray and think. It was, I'm going to take you from a place where you're being unjustly treated and simply uh, wealth is being extracted from you, and I'm going to allow you to go to a place where you can work, and it's a, a good land that will have rewards in it for each and every one of you. And so the Bible has never separated these ideas. And in our day, we can tend to, uh, but the Bible has always kept them together, that because God has made us body and soul, physical matters and spiritual matters are always linked together. And so money matters are spiritual matters. A few weeks ago, uh, our eldest uh, son said to me, hey, Dad, you remember how you owe me $20? And I was like, wait, what? Uh, if we were in a court of law, somebody would have said, hold on, that's a leading question. Uh, you're, you're leading the witness in that. I said, what are you talking about? Don't you remember how you owe me $20? No, I don't remember how I owe you $20. Can you remind me why I owe you $20? And then he reminded me that, yes, I do, in fact, owe him $20, that I needed $20 for something. I never have cash, and so I took $20 that uh, one of his grandmothers gave to him out of a jar and said, remind me I owe you this $20 because I'm giving it to somebody else right now. Uh, but as he reminded me of that, it became very clear $20 is one thing, but there was behind that a sense that I had told him that I was going to do something, that I was going to give him something back. And so now his evaluation of me and my integrity and my promise keeping is what was really at stake in whether I was going to return those $20. And as I'm saying that, I have no idea if I've still returned that $20. So I do have to figure that out. You, you can hold me accountable and ask me if I've given him his $20 back. Um, it's a physical and tangible thing, but it reveals other aspects of our heart. And, and so as later in this uh, chapter, Paul says that the love of money is the, the root of all kinds of evil. He's actually now repeating a phrase that he had said earlier to Timothy in chapter 3 when he told Timothy as he was looking for future leaders in the church, he said in chapter 3, this is the beginning of verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Then when he goes on to describe uh, deacons, He says, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, everyone will evaluate individuals on this question of what does their relationship with money and possessions and material things reveal about their heart. And so do not put people into leadership who are known as being lovers of money or people who are greedy for dishonest gain. It will hamper the spiritual effectiveness and fruit and reputation of the church if that is what is ultimately exalted. And we all know that in our own hearts. And so the, what he encourages all of us is in verse 6, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And so this is both physical and spiritual, that uh, when we try to take all the different things that his letter is encouraging us, he wants us to be able to follow after God 
and to care about somebody's character more than their possessions and in so doing to be able to live life with integrity. That there are question of whether or not we can be content in any moment, we, we often are tempted to think is a matter of how many things we have or how secure we feel in our possessions. But Paul is saying to Timothy, no, it, it's ultimately not things that bring contentment to us. Uh, it is our own relationship with our Heavenly Father and our own sense of trust that he knows our needs and he is looking out for our needs. And in our relationship with him and our growing in godliness, one of the evidences of that growing in godliness is that we can be content in a variety of situations. We can be content with a little. We can be content with a lot. We can be entrusted with times of abundance. And we can also stay steadfast in our faith in times of significant need. But this is what he longs for all of Christ's followers to be able to exhibit. And so he's saying this directly to Timothy, but this applies to each and every one of us. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we want to put that in the reverse and think of what the negative would be, uh, possessions and materialism without contentment creates profound loss. If godliness with contentment is great gain, selfishness or self-centeredness with a lot of possessions or a lack thereof produces uh, significant loss. Uh, I was traveling recently and was looking for something to read, and so uh, I was struck in looking at the, the index of a magazine of the Harvard Business Review, and the title of the article that it was recommending was uh, when hiring CEOs focus on character. And so I was like, oh, that's just interesting. So I grabbed it off the shelf and was looking at it, and it says, um, personal behavior can predict which leaders might go astray. There's a lot of technical language in this, but this was a researcher trying to look at now multiple incidences of profound failure at the top of companies and say, would there have been any way ahead of time that we might have been able to say, this is not going to go in a good direction? Uh, that before it became public, that this much funds was mishandled, etc., that we might have been able to say, were there any leading indicators of it? And so this is eventually what the, the research of this professor at Harvard said. Over-the-top spending, a focus on personal earnings, and an apparent disregard for rules such as company expense policies should be warning signals for boards. In a series of studies over the past decade, colleagues and I have sought to identify off-the-job behaviors that foretell an executive's propensity for ethical lapses. And through this work, we've pinpointed two traits, materialism and an inclination toward rule-breaking that correlate with suspicious trading activity, financial reporting errors, and excessive risk-taking. Risk so then it goes on to say, when hiring CEOs, boards should consider a person's character with an emphasis on whether a candidate displays signs of materialism or a history of flouting rules, ignoring those signs and installing a leader whose life away from the office raises red flags can put a company 
at unnecessary risk. So the wisdom of 1 Timothy continues to be proven again and again. Our character and characteristics off the job absolutely affect who we are and what we do on it. And so positively, godliness in our lives, strong character with contentment, will lead to great gain, to to positive environments to be in, and good and strong work that lasts and endures. And when we ignore that and disregard character, it will lead to profound loss. But as you also then read through this letter and you ask yourself, okay, so what does it mean to have godliness with contentment? You'll see that Paul is giving to Timothy um, sort of multiple examples that look very different. And so that's another point to, to emphasize that, yes, godliness with contentment is great gain, but godliness with contentment looks different uh, depending on who we are and where we are. And so where chapter 6 opened was uh, Paul saying to Timothy, there are people who've come to faith in Christ and they're servants. And now that they've come to faith in Christ, if they're starting to think, well, because their allegiance is to Christ, they don't have to serve anymore, anybody else, you need to tell them, wait a minute, yes, your allegiance is to Christ, but you still need to do good work. You still need to pursue excellence in what you're doing. So contentment is not laziness, right? Contentment is not, well, I just don't really care if the job gets done and I don't really care how it's done because I'm just happy and I'm happy even if the work is terrible. Uh, No, 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 that's not contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so if you are entrusted in a role of service with carrying out a task, how we do that task, with what skill we bring to it, and with what diligence we apply ourselves will affect, again, how people assess us. And they'll say, yes, you are doing good work. You're committed to pursuing the best that you can. You're not just content with the least amount of effort. And so there's this command that we are supposed to pursue, if that's our responsibility, to keep on working hard. Majority of us cannot just decide at any moment to do something different with our lives. We have a job and we have bills to pay that we might be in situations where we say there's something about this that isn't ideal, doesn't seem just or fair and we're wondering what does it mean to obey Christ and go to an environment where we're not sure why everything is done the way it is or what even the ultimate outcome is going to be of the work that we do, which is different than the first century and the the real profound implications of slavery. But if Paul could say to Timothy, tell those who are in this situation that they can still pursue godliness with contentment and they can have honor in how they do their work, that applies to each and every one of us. We can, in our daily tasks, whether we're paid for it or unpaid, whether we're a student or a worker, whether we're retired, we can go about our daily lives and seek to honor him and glorify God and worship him by the way that we do things. And then he also has instructions for those who are desiring to uh, and falling into the temptation of wanting to be rich that they're cutting the corners more and more. And Paul, to them, is 
giving a, a warning sign to say there's danger there. And so for them, godliness with contentment looks like repentance. Stop cheating. <laughs> Stop lying on your numbers. Stop withholding things from people that you're supposed to be giving to them. Because if you think by holding it in or by cheating or lying that, and the more that you have for yourself, the greater you're going to be, he's saying, no, that's not how you're going to actually find real and, ma- and lasting joy. And so it looks like repentance. Earlier in uh, chapters 4 and 5, Paul recognized that there were people in the church who now were in a situation of being in significant financial need because they might have lost a spouse. And so Paul starts talking about widows and the obligation that Timothy has in encouraging people to help care for their elderly parents who are suffering. And Paul has uh, some pretty strong language for Timothy as he talks about uh, those who have the responsibility of caring for others, where he encourages uh, that, uh, let's go to, if you want to follow along with me, this is in chapter 5 beginning in verse 7 Paul is giving instruction for now how to care for family members who are in need and he says to Timothy command these things as well so that they may be without reproach and he's commanding people to work hard if they can but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever That's pretty strong language that Paul is giving to Timothy. And so here, godliness with contentment is taking on the responsibility of somebody who is in need, who you have a relationship with, and caring for them. He goes on to say, if there are those who are in need, but they have the capacity to work, it's encouraging them to go to work and to be able to start to take care of and provide for themselves and then later in chapter 6 when he then says those of you who are rich in this present age he says to Timothy charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but to be rich in good works to be generous and kind and so all of that is pursuing ultimately godliness with contentment but it looks very differently than if we are a servant, if we are currently uh, committing actions that require repentance, or if we're currently rich and we have the ability to come alongside other people, or if we're in a season of life where somebody around us is in significant need. And so it, it might look different in every one of our lives, but money matters, our spiritual matters, and all of us are to be pursuing godliness with contentment and to trust that in it is great gain we sang it a bit in the in the hymn of heaven song uh, but it's one of the my favorite quotes Uh, i believe it comes from saint augustine's the city of god but one of the ways that he contrasts the city of god and the city of man is to say here in the city of man we often love gold and we walk on people and in the city of god we love people and we'll walk on gold. And all of us have the opportunity in our daily lives to show that if our citizenship is in heaven and we believe that we will have an inheritance that nobody can take from us, 
then how much of our time are we going to devote to trying to make sure we get everything that we think belongs to us now instead of living lives of a posture of generosity towards others, contentment in the things that God has given us, and show that what we love the most are the relationships that we have, are the people who are around us. And if we have the opportunity to actually come alongside of and support people in their needs, what a gift. What an opportunity that God would allow us to be agents of his to come alongside other people. And the last thing to say in this chapter, uh, well, first, even before I go there, uh, I can remember a couple of years ago uh, in thinking through the ways that this will apply itself differently in our lives, going through uh, the fruit of the Spirit, which is sort of uh, re-summarized here uh, in verses 11 and 12 when he tells us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And in that uh, message, just thinking about gentleness, and when gentleness might be, for all of us, at a premium, you know, when is it most valued that people be gentle? Uh, one of the things that we were reflecting on is often in times of very difficult news. When somebody has really hard news to give, it's especially appreciated when they come with an appropriate gentleness. When a doctor comes to tell you what your diagnosis might be or that your loved one is no longer alive. Those kind of serious moments where gentleness is especially appreciated because the news itself is difficult. And I remember reflecting on that and somebody here uh, came up to me afterwards and they said, you know, I just really needed that because as part of my job this week, I have to let a few people go. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to deliver the bad news that I'm going to be telling somebody that they're losing their job. But I want to, I feel better prepared now to go into it and think, well, how would I want to be talked to if I was in their shoes? How can I show them the dignity of who they are and the value of who they are, even though I have to deliver this difficult news? And we all face those kinds of challenges on a regular basis. And so for us, maintaining our priority to show love and concern for people and the value that we place, that we believe ultimately God places on them, that we have the opportunity to reflect. And then lastly, as Paul talks about it, he points back to Christ. And so godliness with contentment, it looks different. It is of great gain. Uh, but for us, it sometimes becomes most clarifying when we think of Christ and his love for us and ultimately Christ-likeness in obedience being our joy. And so as he tells them to fight the good faith and to take hold of the eternal life, he says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the world. For me, it's fascinating that uh, the Apostle Paul points specifically to the time that our Savior was before Pontius Pilate. Because if you remember that encounter, one of the things that Pontius Pilate is challenging Jesus with is to say to him, don't you know who I am? Don't you know how important I am? Don't you know how significant I am? 
Don't you know how many possessions are at my command? You need to speak up. You need to answer to me if you really know who I am. And Jesus just looks at him and says, there's not one thing you have that wasn't given to you from my Father. And there's not one thing you can do to get me to disobey my Father. There's nothing you can offer me to get me to compromise, to shortcut, to cheat. Everything you think you have that you've earned is actually from his. And when I follow after him, he is going to give to the world more than you could possibly ever imagine. And so before Pontius Pilate, Christ made the good confession that he served a kingdom that transcended this world, that put the things of this world in its proper place. And so I think it's appropriate that Paul reminds Timothy and all of us of this time in Christ's life when we think about the ways in which money matters reveal our own heart and say, do we know our Heavenly Father in that way? That we, we value what He values in the right proportion and that we desire to follow after Him. Whether we're in times of abundance, if you imagine Jesus feeding the 5,000 on a hillside and everybody celebrating in the goodness of that, but if we're also in a time of persecution and suffering, when Jesus was standing before Pilate bound, having been scourged on his way to Golgotha, he still trusted his heavenly father, knew his purposes for him were good. And so for us, over time, it will look different in every season of our lives. But may the grace of God be with us to pursue Christ-likeness in obedience with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do see into each and every one of our hearts. And you know what is revealed about them in the ways that we wrestle over our relationship with the things that we have that you want to instill in each and every one of us good character that pursues excellence and diligence in the tasks that we have, that is able to care for the needs of those around us. And yet in your love for us, you want our hearts to never fall in love with the things that we have. You want our love to continue to be for you and for the people that you have created. And we confess that that's always a challenging thing for us to discern. And so we pray that in your graciousness and gentleness and kindness, that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts. That in our different responsibilities and different challenges, you would help us all collectively to pursue godliness with contentment and to encourage one another in that pursuit. In Jesus' name we pray.